good morning, church. I know that you uh, saw me moving and uh, but didn't hear anything. So uh, good morning, church. Lots of technical issues this morning. I think we've overcome just about all of them now, Lord willing. All right. Good to be with you. Romans chapter 7 is where we are. And let's start uh, by talking about, I think, a name that's very familiar to all of us, Neil Armstrong. He was the first human uh, to walk on the surface of uh, the moon. And he said this in his autobiography. I love this. I believe every human has a finite number of heartbeats. I don't intend to waste any of mine. Now, the question I have for us when I hear something like that is, are you wasting any of your heartbeats? Am I wasting any of my heartbeats? And I'll add this. Are we wasting them on things that keep us from enjoying all that God wants us to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to experience life to the full. And in today's passage, we actually see that the gospel is life. All these different facets of the gospel that we're talking about, the gospel is life. And every Christian, everyone who has received the gospel, everyone who's received the grace of God should be experiencing the fullness of life in Christ with all that that means. Should be saying confidently, I've been declared dead to the law and alive to Christ. But are you saying that? And not just saying it, but are you living that out? Are you believing it? Or are you wasting heartbeats, believing the wrong things about Jesus, about salvation, about his grace and his gospel and how that all plays out in your life? So let me read the passage, the first six verses of Romans chapter 7, and then we'll pray. Here's what uh, Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that, that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray together. Father, um, as we come uh, to your word today, we know that we are uh, striving to get through these dark days of winter and, Father, of lockdown. And uh, God, we would admit to a person that everything is harder. And the normal outlets that we have to even relieve tension and to have a change are, are all but gone. And nevertheless, we have you. We have your word. And we want to thank you because we have life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would help us see that today and understand it and grasp it and revel in it. 
For you've been good to us. God, help us to hear your word and to live out this gospel every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get right after this. Here's the statement we're working on. It's in your notes at hbc.info. The statement is this, I have been declared dead to the law and alive to Christ. And the principle is driven home here. Paul likes to ask rhetorical questions. We see this all the way through Romans. He's asking a question, then he's giving the answer. It's all very logical and reasonable. He says in verse 1, do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? If you're dead, here's the principle, if you're dead, it doesn't matter what crime you've committed. Okay? The police can't arrest you any longer. The law is no longer binding on you because you're dead. You're, you're off the hook. See how logical that is and how much sense that makes? We've been declared dead to the law. It no longer applies to us. But Paul wants us to really understand this, and so he jumps into an illustration about marriage to help his readers grasp what he's saying. He wants them to understand what happened to them when they got saved. And it's a marriage illustration, as I said. Verse 2, a married woman, he reasons, is bound to the law by law to her husband while he lives. As long as two people are still alive and they have a covenant of marriage, they're still bound to each other. But if If he dies, it says she's released from that marriage. Now, it's a true principle then. It's a true principle now. Once your spouse passes away, you can legally marry again. And he comes at it in verse 3 from the other side, wants to make sure we have it. She will be an adulteress. Okay, if she doesn't wait for her husband to die, but she, you know, gets with another guy. Then she lives with another man while her husband's still alive. She's an adulteress. And again, he pushes the point. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Now, the only thing that Paul wants us to get from this is this. Once death happens, the reach of the law ends. And as that relates to our salvation, and when we talk about our salvation, that's our standing before God made possible by the redemptive work of Christ. As it relates to our salvation, we have died to the law. The law did its job. We've mentioned that several times in messages in this first part of Romans. The law did its job. The law exposed our sin. The law showed us just how far from God's ideal we actually are. The law uh, made it clear that we could never make up the distance ourselves. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, and just to dip back into chapter 6 for a moment, chapter 6.18, that Jesus, by his death on the cross, set us free from sin. He set us free from the demands of the law. And we've been talking a lot about the law because Paul's been talking a lot about the law. It all bears repeating again. He wants us to completely understand this because we fall back into it so easily. Even once we become saved, what we want is a set of rules to show us what it means to be a Christian. And God's saying you have to resist that. But does that mean, the fact that we're dead to the law, does that mean that we jettison the law entirely? Well, we've already made the point that we don't. In fact, John Stott said this. I think this is helpful. This does not mean that we have been divorced from the law altogether. 
in the sense that it has no more claims on us of any kind or that we have no more obligations to it. On the contrary, the moral law remains a revelation of God's will, which he still expects his people to, and he puts it in quotes, fulfill by living lives of righteousness and love. It's not required that we keep the law, but once we have Christ, once we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we want to be like our God. We want to embrace the moral law, even though we have no obligation to it in that sense. The law cannot save us, it, to use the word of, uh, the, that Paul uses here. It can't justify us. The law can't justify us, and, and the law can't keep us saved. It doesn't sanctify us. Both justification and sanctification come to us by grace alone. That is to say, it's the free gift of God. It comes to us by faith alone. That is to say, not by works, not by keeping the law. And it comes to us by Christ alone. There is no other way to be saved but through Christ. And so we're able to make this bold declaration, not on the basis of our own works, but on the works of Christ. I am dead to the law. I'm alive to Christ. Just as the woman is free from her marriage if her husband dies, I am free from the law because Jesus died. And I need to be bold. You need to be bold in declaring that. And once we have established that, once we're declaring that, we understand that our identity is now confirmed. My identity is now confirmed. In the latter part of Romans 6, we saw that we are slaves either to God or to the law. And again, when we're talking about being slaves to the law, what we're talking about is being slaves to the evil ones, slaves to our flesh, slaves to the world. In other words, slaves to sin. That's what the law points out, how far short we've come. And so it's one or the other. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to sin, a slave to the law. And if you've not given your life to Christ, then you identify, if we're talking about what your identity is, if you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you identify as a sinner. In fact, you identify, this is important, you identify as an unredeemed sinner. And that distinction is important when we get to the latter part of Romans 7. Because when you're an unredeemed sinner, that sets you on a certain undesirable eternal path. But if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, as Paul says here, you have, and this is verse 4 now, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. And the result is that you belong to another. That's awesome. You belong to another. You belong to Christ. You're going to serve either sin and the law or you're going to serve Christ. And Christ becomes your master. He's your Lord. And he sets your new identity as belonging to him. You are a Christ one. You take on his name as your own. And if you're like me, you've got a lot of things still to sort out in your life. I have things that I still have to sort out in my life, things that I'm still growing in, things that I'm still struggling with. I'm sure everyone, well, I know, everyone who's listening right now, who's watching this and hearing these words, you all have something to sort out still in this life. 
But nothing, nothing else in life is ever going to be sorted out from you, for you, until you lock down who you are and you keep reminding yourself every day of who you are. Much of what we deal with in our biblical soul care ministry is related to issues of identity, and if only we could remember that we are Christ ones. So many of the things that we would need to sort out could get sorted out. Many of the pitfalls in life would be avoided if we simply embraced the truth about who we are. Namely, that we are human beings created by God and created in His image. That we were made, in fact, to bring Him glory. If we understand that that's why we're made, that that's our identity, that that we're here to bring glory to God, we could sort so many things out. If we were to also understand that we're sinners because sin entered this world and sin entered us, that that sin separated us from God, we could sort so many things out if we understood that, that we are not inherently good. We could sort so many things out if we accept the message of the gospel, understanding that our sins could be atoned for, that is to say, covered by Jesus. And that we could be declared to be righteous. We can be declared to be saints. The Pope doesn't make saints. The Pope makes saints on the basis of things that those human beings did. And God makes us saints on the basis of what Jesus did. And every one of us who have Christ have been declared to be saints. That is to say we're holy Now listen, when you lock down all of those things about our identity, knowing and believing those identity points and embracing them as your own, that changes everything in our lives. It changes how we view the world. It changes how we look at suffering and endure through it. It changes how we relate to one another. It changes our sexuality. It changes how we look at and handle our money. It changes how we look at influence and power. It changes how we view time and eternity. It changes how we view death. There's no need to wonder about any of these things if you belong to another, if you belong to Christ, if you are a Christ one. That's your identity. And so with my identity confirmed, I understand that Christ's resurrection, see this next, Christ's resurrection power flows within me. Verse 4 continues, I belong to him who has been raised from the dead. And just as I was, again, dipping back into chapter 6, verse 4, just as I was buried with him in the likeness of his death, I'm raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. But then that challenges me because I step back and look. Do I see the resurrection power flowing in my life? That power is going to manifest first in the confidence that I have in what Christ has done for me. Am I confident in what Christ has done for me? Am I confident in His grace in my life? That it's enough. That I don't need to bring any works to the table. 
that I can't bring about my own salvation, that I can't coerce God, I can't convince God to be nicer to me by what I do for Him. When I have resurrection power, I rest. I relax. I trust. I step back from all of my striving to appease Him. I simply enjoy God. And it, it, it just, it changes things. It changes my perspective on some pretty ordinary things that are in the life of the Christian. So when I have resurrection power, for example, let me give you three or four examples here. When I have resurrection power, I read the Word. But I read the Word because I want to know Him more. I read the Word because I love the story. I want to know His story. Not because I've been guilted into it by a sermon, because I know that a good Christian reads the Bible every day. Not because of some legalistic sense that I have to, that God's going to be angry if I don't read the Bible. When you have resurrection power, you, you get the book open and you read it because you, you want to know more about God. So you're not going to be slavishly like, I got to read this many chapters a day, or I, I got I to gotta dive in deeply to it, or I, I got to... Listen, listen. Just read his word because you want to. Because you want to know more about him. This is the same, same with worship. It's a second example. I worship him because I love him. I, I worship him not because it's routine, not because it's part of our liturgy, not because I have to. I worship because I love him. I want to be able to tell him the best way I can. I, I want to be able to sing with some emotion because I ought to bring my emotions to the table on this too. Music is very emotive. I want to I rehearse in song the things I know to be true about him. I, I want the lyrics to speak about what I believe. The third example I, I give, not out of obligation, and, and Paul talks about this in, in, in writing to the Corinthians about offerings, and he just says, I, give out of, I don't give out of obligation. That's what the law does to us. I give because I have to. I give a certain amount because that's the amount I should give. No, no, no. When I have resurrection power in me, I give cheerfully. I give willingly, not out of compulsion. I give because I want to give. I give generously. I, I give sacrificially. I give, I give beyond what even makes sense because that's what resurrection power does. And then one more example. I, I read the word. I worship. I give. I resist sin. I resist sin not because of some legalistic code. I, I resist sin because I don't want to abuse his grace. That's what chapter 6 was about. I don't want to abuse his grace. I, I just want to be like Jesus. I know he's forgiven me. And I don't want to take advantage of his kindness toward me. I just want to stop sinning. I know it hurts others. I know it hurts me. And I want to thank God for what he did, for his great love for me, for the sacrifice of his son, I, I want to thank him by just not doing that anymore. That's 
That's what resurrection power does for us. So let it flow in your life and and then see that that when we do it, it produces God-honoring results. This this raising of Christ and, and us, because we were raised with Christ, we were buried with Him. The raising of Christ from the dead comes, verse 4 continues, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The Lord's intent is not simply to save us, but to produce something in us throughout the entirety of our lives. Salvation is not a static, one-time event whereby we book our accommodation in heaven and then life goes on pretty much as normal. Nothing changes in the interim. No, instead, we are to, throughout our lives, bear fruit for God. We are to bear fruit for God in three aspects of our lives, which encompass everything, we are to bear fruit for God internally. In other words, there is to be internal, internal, personal, spiritual growth in my life. Inside, I should be feeling closer to God. Growing in my knowledge of who He is. Growing in my worship. But also horizontally. I'm going to bear fruit for God internally. I'm going to bear fruit for God horizontally. I'm going to bear fruit for God in the mission that I have in this world to make disciples. I'm going to be serving in some way and talking to people at, at, at every opportunity I have about Jesus Christ. Helping them to be better disciples for him. But also horizontally in our relationships. And so when I have the resurrection power, that's bearing fruit for God in my marriage and in my friendships and in my workplace and in my neighborhood. Are you seeing that internally, horizontally, vertically increasing in the knowledge of God? We should be seeing fruit in all three aspects of our lives. This is what God is doing through his Holy Spirit in every true believer. And this is what you and I should be seeing in our lives when we are alive to Christ, when God's grace has come to us, when the gospel is changing us. So are you seeing that fruit in your life. All right, you can see the statement that we're building throughout this message. I've been declared dead to the law and alive to Christ. You need to be able to say this for yourself. I've been declared dead to the law and alive to Christ, and so my identity is now confirmed, and Christ's resurrection power flows within me, which is producing God-honoring results, see this last, that are new every single day. These past uh, months have been difficult on all of us. We, of course, have crossed the one-year mark of COVID in Canada. Uh, We're coming up in just a few short weeks on the beginning of a one-year anniversary of the lockdowns. No part of the world has escaped this, and admittedly, it's been uh, more difficult for some um, rather than others. Lives, though, have been irreversibly altered. And at this point in the pandemic, which uh, seems to be far from over, uh, we're not really even fully aware of what the downline impacts are going to be on our society and culture and our lives. And yet, um, in the midst of it, God's mercies continue to be evident. And I hope that you can see that. And I I need to say a word at this point about the difference between how our church and I would say a majority of churches are walking through this season and the way some churches, pastors, and Christians are approaching 
of this time. There are some who believe that we have to meet at a certain time, in a certain place, and in fact, it needs to be Sunday mornings, and it needs to be in the church building, and it needs to be every week. And if we're not doing that, that we're outside of God's will, and that's why they're pushing so hard on this. And while I admit that that is the norm, and that we ought not to be forsaking our assembly, uh, the assembling of ourselves together, and that God has made us to assemble and to be together, and we need this fellowship, and you should have that longing in you. While I agree that is the norm, these are not normal times. This is a very unique situation that the entire world is going through right now. And our experience has been this, that God is still working in the midst of these days, even as we're unable to meet in this room. That God still has lessons for us to learn that I believe we would not have learned had it just been the status quo and keep meeting and every Sunday the same. That we ought to be on our faces before God saying, what do you have for us in this season? What are you trying to say to the church right now? Well, I'm asking that question, and our elders are asking that question. Our staff is asking that question. You ought to be asking that question. God, what exactly are you trying to communicate to the church right now? Why has everything changed in this way? Because none of this has taken God by surprise. And in the midst of it, even, even as we face these difficult circumstances, the mercies of God continue to show up. I got uh, two um, communications this week, one by email, one uh, text, that are just evidence of God's mercies. And I'm going to read these to you. I'm going to keep them anonymous, but I'm going to read them to you. Listen to this one, an email I got just a few days ago. Dear Pastor Todd, I would like to thank you for such a great sermon last Sunday. Previously, I was being convicted by realizing if I was truly saved or not. Really, I wasn't saved at all. About a year ago, I prayed to God requesting to be saved, but I wasn't sincere in doing that. I was more focused on pleasing my parents rather than focusing on God because it was at a great season of conflict. Your sermon brought me to a great sense that I wasn't truly saved and that I needed to make things right with God. I am now truly saved and a new brother in Christ. That's awesome. That's, that's the mercy of God. Amen? That's the mercy of God. And then this text came, I think, just on Friday Praying for you, brother, to reach as many souls as God ordains. My Bible study group that we started on Monday has new harvest members and attendees that have only attended via live stream. And so I know it's working. I know it's tough to preach via video, but God is using this medium. And I believe that with all of my heart. These are God's mercies to us, just two examples, and I know it's happening throughout our ministry, two examples of God's mercies coming down to us. God is here. God is ordaining. God is working. God is speaking. God is showing us His grace and mercy. God is saving. God is calling. God is refining. God is leading us. 
Verse 5 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. In other words, before we were saved, Paul's taking us back there, before we knew Jesus, we were sinners indulging in sinful things as sinners do. And the result wasn't good. The verse goes on to say that we were bearing fruit for death. But then you see the shift in verse 6. But now... But now, at the point of conversion, the moment that you were redeemed by Christ, not only are your sins removed, but awesome things come in their place. R.C. Sproul said this, It's not simply that Jesus pays our debts for us by dying. His life is as important to us as his death. Not only does Christ take our sins, our debts, our demerits, but he also gives us his obedience, his assets, and his merits. That is the only way a just person can ever stand in the presence of a just and holy God. And so the the bottom line here is, yes, for sure God is saving us from something, but he's also saving us to something. God wants you to not only be relieved of guilt and shame, but he wants you to enjoy and have peace and joy in your life. He takes away the bad, but he gives you the good. And we should be enjoying that good. The gospel is life. We're going to be turning our attention in a few moments to the Lord's table. And as we do that, we're going to be reminded of his death. The part that takes away the bad. The bread is to remind us of his body given for us. The cup of his blood shed for us on the cross. The whole point of the table is to remember his death. The Apostle Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But maybe you've also heard the expression, death gives way to life. Verse 6, but now, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. That's the good news that he gives us. Which he's already described in verse 4 as being in Christ. And having this resurrection power and bearing fruit. Having life. So death gives way to life. Our death with Christ gives way to our life in Christ. And we should be taking full advantage in seeing and experiencing the fullness of life in Christ. That's our Christian life filled with abundance, not adherence to a bunch of rules. We can and should have that abundant life no matter what's happening around us. As I was going through this section and thinking about all of these things, I thought of a couple of verses. John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That's why Jesus came. He doesn't want to just give you eternal life. He wants to give you an abundant life now. And then I, I thought about um, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Think about this. Very familiar. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, there's something about the book of Lamentations that maybe you don't realize. Those verses are right in the very center of what we call chapter 3, but it's really stanza 3 or poem 3, five, a set of five poems 
So right there at the center of poem three, in the midst of five poems that are really all tied together, they could really be five stanzas of one poem. All five of them, by the way, are acrostics based on the Hebrew alphabet. The poetic structure is intentional. The poet, in other words, thought this through. Everything in the poem, in fact, from the very first line leading right up to chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, everything it rises up to this pinnacle. And then having reached the pinnacle, everything else relates to it. It is the, 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 the crown jewel of the entire poem. Everything in the poem leading up to the pinnacle, which is so encouraging and so affirming, and everything after the pinnacle, though, is lament. Hence the name Lamentations. It's grief, it's sorrow, it's loss. In fact, the hardest and most desperate stanza is the last one. Even after this amazing declaration that we just read, it's defeat in light of the very crushing circumstances that were happening all around this poet-prophet. Everything that was happening in Jerusalem and Israel as Jeremiah saw it. And what the prophet poet wanted you and I to know more than anything else is that in the midst of whatever you're facing, in the midst of the most tragic circumstances, what he wanted us to know more than anything else is that God is faithful and that his mercies are new every morning. And if you know that, You know everything you need to know to make it through today and tomorrow and the day after that. This is no doubt both the reality of our lives that we need to keep affirming, but it's also aspirational in the sense that it's a battle to live this out. And let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it isn't. We battle it out. We ought to battle it out because that's what it means to be alive in Christ and to have the power of the gospel. We started out this sermon talking about heartbeats. We only have so many of them. And so why waste them on things that don't realize the power of the gospel in our lives? Because the gospel is life. Well, that's the word of God and it leads us into a time of communion as a response to uh, this message. And so I hope that you've prepared a bread or cracker, uh, wine or juice uh, to have with uh, whoever's there in your household watching right now, or if you're alone, you're joining with us. We are uh, bound together by the Spirit of God during this time of communion. We commune together, even if we aren't uh, together here in the room. We hear this in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Looking forward to that day. But as we take uh, the bread right now, Jesus broke it in front of his disciples and he handed it out to them and he said, take and eat. 
this is my body. Let's eat it together in remembrance of him. And he also took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, this is my blood, the new covenant. Drink it together in remembrance of me. Let's drink it with gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Our God and Father, we are so grateful for the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. We thank you for all that that means, Father, not just in his death removing our sin, but, Father, in his resurrection life giving us an abundant life, an eternal life. God, I pray simply that we would all live out the gospel this week in every possible way, and we would do it to your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.